Good morning again, everybody. Uh, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor, if you do not know me. Um, we're in part two of our series, Dysfunctional Families. Um, as, a, as a student, um, if you remember, some of you, student time was a long time ago, so think, hopefully you can think back to that. Um, but as a student, you took a lot of tests. You remember that, like, you would take tests constantly. Middle, my, uh, my girls now, Brooklyn, who's in third grade, is starting to take tests almost weekly. Um, and so we're starting to get her to study, all that kind of stuff. And then it just kind of keeps going. You take tests all throughout high school. If you want to eventually drive, you take a test. Um, if you want to get into a good school, you have to take a test prior. And depending on the grade you get on that test, you might be able to get into a school. Then when you get into that school, you have to take a test to see what math you're going to be in and what placement you're going to be. And then when you're in college, you take a bunch of tests. It's just test, test, test constantly. And um, just like most students, when I took tests, I hated it. Hated taking tests. I was never good at tests. Um, 70s, if I got a 70, 70, 80, I was ecstatic about that. That's all I needed. I was bare minimum when it came to tests. And then when I became an adult, I thought my test days were over. But the more I think about it, and you maybe think about it a little bit too, is we are constantly taking tests, even as adults. Here's some of the tests that we take. Uh, we take personality tests. That's kind of become like a little bit of a trend now of taking personality tests. And I've taken a ton of personality tests. And some of you may love personality tests, and some of you may hate them and think that it's silly, and it just you really take it, and it's just an algorithm determining who you are. And then you eventually start to act that way because you learn the results. I know that's some of your guys' arguments. Um, but I like them. And I've taken, here's some of the personality tests I've taken. I've taken Enneagram. I've taken Strength Finders, EQ, which which um, tests you're not your IQ, but your EQ, your emotional intelligence. You're, uh, I've taken love languages, temperaments, and so many more tests that I've taken. Here's what I've learned about myself. I am a three-wing, two-task-oriented extrovert that is a maximizer, futuristic, strategic competitor with a 70 EQ, and I love words of affirmation. So if you want to know how I need to be loved, um, I need words of affirmation. So I always make Frank say good things to me um, during the day. Okay. That's some tests I take. I also take professional tests. Maybe you've taken some professional tests as well. Um, before I became a pastor, um, I actually got my real estate license um, because I did not know what to do. And my mom was a real estate agent, so she's like, hey, you can get your real estate license, and then you can be my assistant and help with that. She said, okay. So I took those tests. It's a national test and a state test. I passed them both. I was my mom's assistant for two months, and then she basically fired me because I was terrible at it, and I have not done anything with it since. So I spent a lot of money for a test that I've done nothing with. Um, but even in the pastoring process, I had to take a lot of tests just in the whole pastor license process. Um, what happens is you take, there's, in, in our district, in our denomination, there, uh, you get your local license, that's the first step, and then when you go to get your district license, you go to what they call MAC Weekend, which is Ministry Assessment Center Weekend. Um, and Michelle, you might remember it, um, I, mine was a while ago at this point, and when I, before you arrive, you have to take all these tests prior. You take um, tests when it comes to your personality, theology tests, uh, psychological tests, they test your interests, all these different things. Then when you show up, they basically keep meeting with you, and they talk with you, and they talk with your spouse, and they see if, if, if you should be a pastor, and they ask you, what, you, you answered this for here, and they ask all these tests. And actually, that was the very first place that Mac Weekend that I had someone come up to me and say, hey, you took a church planning test, and you scored really high, like very high on the church planning test. And I said, well, I'm part of a church plant right now where I was working with a church plant, and that's why. And that guy said, no, it's not. And that was the very first time I was like, oh, maybe that's in the future, and now here we are today. And then I've also taken a lot of medical tests. Um, I had asthma as a kid, so they had to give me tests for that. I still kind of do. Um, I did the allergy tests. Do you guys remember those where you, they pricked here, 
and then they put like drops of whatever, like dog, or I don't know what they're putting drops of, but that's why I thought a tree in there and like all that kind of stuff. And then they make you sit there for an hour. I don't know if they still do this, but when I was a kid. And then if it gets bumpy and itchy, that means you're allergic to it. So I would also call that test just torture because that's all it was, just sitting there like this. And then you can't itch it. And I realized I was allergic to dogs, cats, trees, apples, steak. Like I was allergic to everything. So it was basically, yeah, it was. And I eat it all. I don't know why. But anyways, um, I took, I've taken that test before. Um, I've taken more COVID tests than I can even count at this point. I have taken blood tests to see my blood. I went to an ENT a while ago, and they had to test um, my, my nose because some of you already know this, but I have a voice that sounds a little nasally, and the reason why is because of my nose doesn't really work. Um, I have nasal polyps up here, and um, one day I went to the ENT, and they tested, like, yeah, you have it. Let's see if it's an allergy thing. It wasn't. And then um, I went back, they're like, hey, we can just remove those. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Why don't you just go ahead and, and remove them? And I thought it'd be an easy process where they maybe numb you. Nope. They just lean you back and they yank things up there and pull them out. And after seven of them, I almost passed out. And one was huge. He was like, oh, look at that really big one. And I was like, oh, I'm getting all like, they, so they turned the lights out. And I'm in his office. They turned the lights out and put a cloth over my head and said, here, just take a couple minutes. So I'm laying there. And then they come back, like, hey, you ready for more? I'm like, I guess. And they just keep yanking them out. And eventually I said, you have to stop. I am going to die if you keep doing this. And, I, and my nose worked so well for two weeks until they all grew back. So I'm not doing that again, ever again. But you take tests constantly in life, whether you're a child or an adult. You're always taking tests. And what is the point of a test? What is the goal of a test? Here's the goal of a test. To reveal who you are or what you know. That's the goal. To reveal who you are or what you know. In school, you take a test to prove that you know something. And if you fail it, then it means you didn't know it. So that's why they take a test. At work, you take tests to prove you are prepared and capable. Um, we have a lot of people that are either um, uh, in, in a fireman or, or police officers, and you have to take a test to make sure you're capable to do the job. So they give you tests for that. Um, at the doctors, you take tests to discover what's going on in your body. You need to know. It's to, to reveal who you are and what you know. The tests don't determine who you are. They don't determine what you know. They indicate who you are and what you know. It's a very important distinction. They reveal what is true. They don't determine what's true. They just reveal it. They reveal what is true in us. But if you're like me, I hate when life gives me a test. When something in life tests who I am, tests my character, tests me. If, when there is a conflict that I have to work through, I hate that. When there's something at work that, that's not going the way I hoped, I don't enjoy it. When, when things in my house break and, and stretch us financially, this, this past month, we had three things happen at the same time. My riding mower went up, so I had to get a new one of those. Then we got our oil bill. Yikes. That was really expensive. And then um, the car that we thought was going to last another three or four years um, died. So that was within a month. So um, I don't know what a savings account looks like anymore. It's all completely gone, right? But when that happens, I don't really enjoy that, right? No one enjoys being tested financially and being stretched. When a loved one is sick or hurting, none of us enjoy it. And it's even harder, what I found, it's even harder when tests come in your family. Because the tests in life prove to each one of us who we are what, and reveal stuff to us, sometimes tests in our family reveals the dysfunction that's in our family. It reveals the, the dynamics in our family. Last week, we actually said these five things, that if these five things are present in your, in your family, any one of these five, then you have a dysfunctional family, just like I do. And here's the five things. We'll, we'll, I'll remind you of these. We said this last week. Number one, estrangement. Number two, anger. Three, lack of trust. Four, deception. Five, unhealthy secrecy. If any one of these five appear in your family, 
then you probably have a dysfunctional family. And my guess is if you're like me, you, get, you might be like, one, <laughs> I have like, I got all five of those. I have all of them. I have three of those. What is this? This is a test. This test reveals to you and to me the dysfunction that is in our families. It doesn't create the dysfunction. It just reveals it to us. Tests constantly happen. And to add an extra layer on top of this, there are times, especially if you look in Scripture, over and over in Scripture, where God tests His people, that God gives us tests. And when I think about this, I normally look at this and be like, God over and over tests people in here, and at times He still tests us, and it's easy for me to think, that's not a good thing. I don't like that. I don't like that the God of the universe tests me or tests you. Like, why would a good God do that? But I would argue it actually is a good thing, and here's why. Every test gives us two options. It's like two different doors. Every time you have a test in life, whether God gave it to you or it's just a trial in life, we have two different options. Option one is to trust God. That's the first option. When a test comes or a trial comes, you can trust God in that test. And option two is to not trust God, is to not trust him. Think about it in Genesis. God has Adam and Eve, and he says, hey, you can eat from any tree anywhere, any tree anywhere but one. There's just this one tree you can't eat from. You can have everything else. You can have everything else, but this one tree you cannot eat from. This is a test. Either they're going to trust God by doing as he says, and if they do that, they're going to be able to rule with God in partnership with God. If they trust God, that's option one, or they can decide to eat from the one tree they're not supposed to and to say, you know what? I don't fully trust that God, that I should listen to what God says. I'm going to go my own way. From the very beginning, we see it. Each test gives you a choice. And here's the, really the choice. The choice is between an opportunity or a trap. That's your two choices. Every test that we have is either an opportunity or a trap. I, I heard this analogy um, from the Bible Project. If you ever watch it on YouTube, it's, I highly recommend it if you haven't. But here's the analogy they give. Let's say there is a king, a king who chooses you to do a royal task. But before he asks you to do this task, he wants to know that you are trustworthy, so he gives you a test. Gives you a test to see whether you are trustworthy or not. This test is really, if it's from a good king, this test is really an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to prove to the king that you're trustworthy, thus you will get the job, and you will, become, you will be noble, and you will be good. But then there's also a rebel, and the rebel hates the king and also hates you. So he also gives you a test. He tries to convince you that what the king is asking you to do, you should not do. And if you fall for that, it's not an opportunity anymore. It's a trap that he set for us. That if the test is from a good king who cares about you, it's an opportunity for you. If it's from a bad rebel who hates the king and hates you, it's a trap. Every test, every trial we have in life is either an opportunity or it's a trap. Every single one. That's our options. And in the story we're going to read today, in Genesis chapter 22, you can open up if, if you want to uh, read along with us in your Bible, your Bible apps. Abraham is given a test. And really before this, he's given many tests. It started with Abraham and Sarah was given a test. The first test they got was to leave their family behind and go to a new land where God will start an entire nation, an entire nation through them. And they pass the test. They say, you know what? I'm going to follow you, God. I'm, I'm going to do that test. And it's a huge opportunity that God awards them because they chose to trust. That during this test, they chose to trust. 
But if you read the story of Genesis, and if you were here last week, you know that they don't always pass the test. First, Abraham and Sarah are walking in, in Egypt, and Abraham, Abraham, who's known as Abraham at the time, is scared that they're going to take Sarai from him, so he, says, so he lies about it. He fails the test. And then last week, we saw that Abraham and Sarah, they, they, were, they were a little impatient on God's plan, so they decided to bring Hagar into the picture. It was a test, and they failed it. Over and over, they failed it, and then here we see another test. Eventually, eventually, Isaac is born. Isaac is born. Abraham and Sarah, even though they were well in age, even though they were very old, the promise that God gave them was, hey, you're going to have descendants more numerous than the stars, that you're going to have descendants. And Isaac is eventually born, and God's promise of a nation and descendants happened with Isaac. So years and years and years of Abraham and Sarah waiting for this child to come. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that Abraham was in his hundreds at this point when, it, when Isaac eventually comes. Years and years and years of waiting, and they finally have this child. And then God gives them a test. Genesis chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 2. It'll be on the screen as well if you don't have your Bible. It says this. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, Isaac, if you read this, you might think, that's not his only son. If you were here last week, there's Ishmael. Like, that's not his only son. But, but when it comes to the covenant that God promised Abraham, the covenant always was going to come between Abraham and Sarah. It wasn't going to come from Abraham and anyone else. So Isaac, when it comes to the covenant, is the only son. And God tells him, take your son, the son that you love. And here's what's interesting about this word love here. It's the first time we see it in the entire Bible. It takes 22 chapters for us to hear the word love. And it's, and it's in a, a father-son relationship. It says, take your son, the one you love, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. I mean, this is heavy. A burnt offering would consist of first killing the sacrifice and then burning it. That's what it would consist of. And Abraham wouldn't be completely shocked with this request in that culture. Sadly, back then, many priests, uh, specifically Canaanite descent, would practice human and child sacrifice to their Canaanite gods. But this God, Yahweh, this God was different. This God would, didn't ask for that stuff. But yet, here we are, this God is now asking, hey, I want a sacrifice. I want a human sacrifice. Not only any human sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice of the son he's been waiting for, the one and only son that he loves, the first time we hear that word, that son is who the sacrifice is going to be. Continues on in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out the place God had told him about. Abraham gets up early. He can't be happy about what he has to do. I mean, he's been waiting for this son forever, but still he gets up early, and in obedience, he starts walking. He gets everything ready, and he starts moving. He starts doing what God said, continuing on in verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. So he's wandering for three days. Three days, he is wandering, looking for the place that he is going to sacrifice until eventually God reveals it. God reveals it. And then he says in verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So the question here is, is Abraham lying here? Is he just telling his servants, he says, hey, you servants stay here. Myself and Isaac are going to go up to this mountain. He knows what he's told to do. I need to go up there and kill my son, sacrifice him. But then he says, we're going to worship, and then we are going to come back. Here's what I believe. 
I don't believe he's lying. I believe that he believes that he is going to come back with Isaac, that even though he is told to kill his son, that what I think he believes, and what a lot of scholars would argue, is that, is that um, he is going to sacrifice his son, and then he believes that God is going to raise him back from the dead. Here's why. Just a chapter earlier, just a chapter earlier, um, in Genesis 21, verse 12, God told Abraham that Isaac will be, his seed shall be called, as in the descendants that God promised is going to come through Isaac. So I, Abraham knows that God can do anything. He knows that God promised that his seed is going to go through Isaac and that through Isaac a nation is going to be built, but he also knows that God told him to sacrifice his son. He doesn't know how both are going to work, but all he knows is God said this, and, and I'm called to do this, so I'm going to do this, and I don't know what God's going to do, but we're coming back because he has to come back. He doesn't know what's going to happen, and, and there's no reason to truly believe that, that his son will be raised from the dead. We've never seen that in Genesis at this point. It's unprecedented faith. He knows what God promised. He knows what God commanded Abraham to do. So all he knows is he has to do what he's commanded and has to trust in the promise. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. Then in verse uh, 6, yeah, verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, that's a key word. We're going to see that twice. But basically what that means is the two two of them went on together is that they went in agreement. They went in agreement. Both Abraham and Isaac are showing tremendous faith here. Verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, to, to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows how this process is supposed to go. He's supposed to bring a lamb, and they don't have a lamb. So he goes, hey, uh, where's the lamb? We, you know, we need that in order to do that sacrifice. And listen to how Abraham responds. Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. There's that word again. In agreement, they kept going. Okay, God's going to provide. How? Abraham has no idea. But God's going to provide. I'm going to trust that God will provide. Then verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of of the wood. Here's what's something that's important here. Abraham at this point is 100 years old, in his hundreds. So he's an old guy. Abraham, or Isaac, is young. Uh, we don't know exactly what, how old he is, but scholars believe he's anywhere between six years old and 30 years old. What that means? If Isaac is a teenager or older, he's a young adult, and this 100-year-old man is going to take him, bound him up, put him on the wood, and kill him. If Isaac didn't want it to happen, he could have stopped it. He could just run away from this 100-year-old man. He could, he could overpower him. He could, he could stop it. But yet it says Isaac is bound up and he's put on the wood. If he wanted to escape, he could, but he didn't. That means that Isaac is allowing this to happen. This is faith. This is him. He like, if this is what you say we're going to do, this is what we're going to do. He's also showing tremendous faith here. Verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. See, Abram doesn't think God's going to stop him. Abraham most likely thinks that God is going to just raise him up after, after he does what he's called to do. But look at this, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. By stopping Abraham, God proves that this God, 
this Yahweh God is not like the pagan gods, is not like any other God who would require something like that, that this God is different. This God does not require a sacrifice of a child. Now we know. It was a test, a test that Abraham passes. Was Abraham willing to give up his prized possession if God asked for it? Did Abraham have enough faith to fully surrender to God? The answer is now clear. Then in verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called this, that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Do you notice something important here? A sacrifice still had to be made. They went up there to sacrifice his son, but a sacrifice still had to be made. It's just not a sacrifice that Abraham is going to provide. It's a sacrifice that God will provide. Verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This test wasn't a trap. It was an opportunity. And because Abraham passed the test, he entered into an opportunity, a God-given opportunity to be the father of a nation. So here's what this story really tells us when it comes to us and our faith. Tests don't produce faith. They reveal faith. They don't produce it. They reveal it. This test did not create faith in God. Abraham already had it. He had it from a journey of tests. In fact, a journey of tests that's made up of a lot of failed tests. A journey of times that he has messed up over and over and over. But yet here we are, and the biggest test that he's given, he shows that he has faith. This test proved that Abraham had faith. Maybe you could think back in your life of tests that you've had. I know um, one of our biggest tests we've ever had, and I've told this many times, so if, you're, if you've been here and heard this, I apologize, but one of the biggest tests that Eric and I ever had was right before we started this church, the going from one month where we had everything fully funded to start this church, including my salary for a year to get ready for the launch process, to the very next month having nothing provided financially and me not having a job and having no one on the team. One month. It was literally like weeks apart where we were fully, hey, you got a whole year of a salary ready to go to get ready this church process. Don't have to raise any money to, oh, I don't have a job anymore. I have no, we have no money that's, that's raised, and we have to figure out a way to do this. And that entire month, Erica and I prayed hard. My first prayers were, God, why? That was my first prayers. Why? It was right there. It was set up perfectly. Don't you want this to succeed, God? Why would you allow this? That's my first prayers. And then after a little bit of time, we started praying, God, reveal to us whether this is actually what you want us to do or not. Because here's what I really, now looking back, something I don't ever want to go through again is the worst season of my life. It was the hardest season we've ever had. It was a time where God was saying, here's what I believe, that he was asking us, hey, are you still fully in, even if I don't just hand it to you? If you've got to work for it, if you've actually got to find a way to get this started, are you still in? Is, is it just easy for you to do it, and you're just going to do it because it's just right there, and all the money's provided, and, and you're going to have a salary, you don't have to work at all? Or are you still going to do it, even if you have to find a new way to do it? Even if you have to meet with a bunch of pastors. We met with, I met with over 20 pastors to try to get funding. We had 14 churches support us. Are you still going to find a way? We had to go months and months without me making a salary. 
Are you still going to do it? It was a test. Life is full of tests. And there's no bigger test I have found in life than the test with your family. Here's, here's why family can be so tricky. You don't really choose them. You might choose your spouse, and that's kind of it. You might choose how many kids you have, but you don't choose how your kids are born. You don't choose your parents. You don't choose your siblings. You, you just, you're, it's out of your control. So that means the dysfunction that is part of your family for a lot of times is out of our control. It's out of our control, and it's not your choice. And there's nothing we can do to change it. Family is both our strength and our weakness. It really is. It, it can be the biggest strength. It can create the support you need, the, the love you need. It can set you up for success. It can be your biggest strength. But man, family can also be your weakness, can it? It can be the, what caused your biggest vulnerabilities and your biggest insecurities in life is created by your family. It, it can be the people that are the hardest to love in your life. It can be the worst pain you've ever felt all because of family. It can be both. It can make, it can make you feel the lowest. But there's no relationship that can grow you more than your family. There really isn't, for better or for worse. Because here's what we can do. When we see the dysfunction of our family, the dysfunction that is there because of, of your sins, because the dysfunction that is there because of the sins of your family, the dysfunction that are there just because it's there, the trials that we have, you have two choices every time. You can see the dysfunction as a trap. You could see it as a way just to hurt you. You could see it as a way that you're never going to grow from it because it's just a trap for you that's never going to produce anything good because your family is messed up, because the people in your family are messed up, because they've hurt you so much, it's just a trap. Or you can see the dysfunction of your family as an opportunity, an opportunity for you to grow, an opportunity for you to love people that are hard to love, an opportunity for you to rely more on God your choice. You have two ways to look at it. Do you create boundaries? Of course you do. Do you protect yourself? Of course you do. But what if the trials and the test and the dysfunction of your family, what if we looked at that as a test that we have two choices? A test that we can choose to allow it to be an opportunity for us to grow and become better and rely more on God and surrender to God more? Or just a trap that we're stuck in and we can't get out of and it's just going to hurt us and make us worse? That's our choice. You don't have a choice whether you face the test, whether you have a test, whether you have a trial. You don't have a choice, but you have a choice on how you respond. Now, some of us may, may look at this and go, well, if there's a lot of tests in our family, then I have failed a lot of those tests. Over and over, I have failed test after test after test. Uh, some of the dysfunction in my family is, is not anyone else's fault. It, it's my fault. Because every test that came my way, I didn't respond correctly. Every test I chose as a trap rather than an opportunity. And I've made it worse and worse. How can I keep proceeding if I continue to fail more than I have passed? Abraham and Isaac, they passed the test. But it's not the last test we'll see in the Old Testament. And then test after test, like the Israelites, with the Israelites, they continue to fail. They are freed from Egypt. If you read Exodus, they're freed from Egypt. And they're wandering the wilderness, and they keep having tests. And the test says, hey, you can trust God. He's going to provide your bread, and then you can get out of here sooner than later. Or you can decide to go your own way and, and complain and say, why, why would God take us from Egypt? We should go back to Egypt where we were slaves. It's better there. Test after test, and they continually fail. They continually choose to go that direction, to, to not trust in God rather than trust in God. And if you read the Old Testament over and over and over again, 
They do not trust God. They show that they're not loyal to God. Anytime something bad happens, they start worshiping another, another God, or they worship another idol. And you can read the prophets. They're just, prophets are basically saying, you guys keep messing up, and God's coming. He keep, you keep messing up. And the whole Old Testament is people failing over and over and over again. This nation that God created fails over and over and over again. They have this amazing opportunity to be the nation of God and partner with God to, to reveal God to their entire world, but they choose not to. They choose to fail, just like you and just like me. The tests continually show that the nation of Israel, the entire Old Testament, that you and me are not qualified, that we cannot pass it. We see that over and over until Jesus shows up. Jesus is finally the only one who is qualified. And test after test, Jesus passes. He's in the desert fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the enemy comes and tempts Jesus three separate times. He has a choice. He can fall for the trap or he can trust his father. And all three times he passes, trust his father. And before the ultimate test that Jesus, Jesus is going to do, Jesus is praying to his father. And he's praying and asking God to allow this upcoming test that he's about to do, allow this upcoming test to pass by him. He said, God, I don't want to do the test. I don't want to do it. But then what does he say as he prays? Father, not my will, but your will be done. If the test is coming, I have no choice but to trust you. And then Jesus, out of love for you and love for me, passes the ultimate test. The ultimate test by allowing his life to be taken from him for your sins and my sins. To allow himself to be sacrificed for all the mistakes that we have done wrong. And if we look back at the story of Abraham and Isaac, just like Abraham and Isaac had to travel for three days before they found the place. Jesus had to be in a tomb for three days. Just like Abraham had to choose to sacrifice his son, God the Father chose to allow his son to be the sacrifice. Just like Isaac had to willingly let his father make a sacrifice, Jesus had to willingly become the sacrifice for you and for me. And just like God provided a lamb to take the place of Isaac, he provides the lamb of God to take the place of you and me. The, the comparison for the story of Abraham and Isaac is just so much. So if God provided for us through Jesus, that means he continually provides for us in our dysfunction of our families. Tests don't produce your faith. They reveal your faith. We will continue to have tests. You're going to continue to have tests in your families. Thanksgiving's coming. There's going to be some tests on Thanksgiving. The holidays are coming. There's going to be tests on your holidays. Tests are going to happen. Every generation, every person has tests. And a lot of us fail it. I do too. But what if, instead of blaming God for the tests that we're about to endure, what if we said, God, I know that this test, which is whether it's God gave you the test or whether it's just the result of the sin, who cares why you have it, but you have it. What if we looked at that test as an opportunity? You know, this is an opportunity for me to look more like you. That's why James says it this way in the book of James. It says, we should consider it pure joy when we face trials. You can use the word test there too. When we face trials of many kind because the testing of your faith, it produces perseverance. And perseverance, when it finishes its work in you, will be, will, you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you look at your family, 
my guess is a lot of the dysfunction that happens in your family is from a lack of maturity, isn't it? Just because you're an adult doesn't mean you're mature. That it's a lack of maturity. But remember, when you face that trial, when you face that test, when you face it, it's an opportunity for you. It's an opportunity to surrender to the God that loves you, that gave the sacrifice for you, that wants you to look more, look more like him. So when that trial comes and you choose instead to go through the door of trusting God in that temptation, in that test, in that trial, to love the people that are hard to love in your family, to be the example that your family needs you to be, when you do that, James says you're going to grow. You're going to become more like Jesus. You're going to become more mature. It's the only way to grow. You don't grow this way. You don't grow by, faith, by just going to the trap, by, by saying, no, I'm not going to trust God in this. I'm going to blame God for this trial. You never grow this way. You only grow here. It's an opportunity. So what if we looked at the dysfunction of our family as an opportunity for us to grow and look more like Jesus? Let's pray. Dear God, we right now surrender to you, the God who always provides for us, that when we could not save ourselves, that you provided the sacrifice that we needed, so that we don't have to be good enough, we don't have to earn it, somebody's need to surrender to you. Dear God, I pray today for whatever trials or tests any of us are going through right now. God, help us to look at that test with the proper perspective as an opportunity for us to look more like you, to rely more on you, to surrender to you. God, I pray that as we deal with the dysfunction in our family, as we deal with the hardships and the trials of our family, that you help us to rely on you, to be mature, to use it as an opportunity to grow closer to you. In your son's name, amen. Let's close today with this closing. Let's stand and sing.